Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us once again for another of our Room and Room podcasts. It's really good to have you with us. Look, first up, to introduce myself uh, for any of you who haven't tuned into one of our podcasts before. My name's Charlotte Westwood. I'm a veterinarian and nutritionist based here in Lincoln, Canterbury in New Zealand, working for PGG Rights and Seeds. So look, in our latest podcast, in fact, this is our 20th podcast now of the Room and Room podcasts, we're going to actually cover the first in a two-part series all about cow-based factors that influence onset of ovulation, or in other words, cyclicity, and estrus, or in other words, heat expression, in lactating, seasonally calving dairy cows. So this is a bit of a different topic, I guess, for the Room and Room podcast so far, getting into this reproductive side of things. Now, the reason that this topic of ovulation and expression of estrus by cows is of real importance in New Zealand seasonal calving dairy herds, notwithstanding it's important in all dairy herds, but of course, ovulation and estrus here in New Zealand are two key factors that influence our three-week submission rate during the first three weeks of mating. And because of that, uh, of course, these two factors are also key contributors to our six-week in calf rates, a very important measure of reproductive efficiency in our herds. So yeah, in this first part episode, what we're going to do is first discuss why achieving our target three-week submission rates is just so very important to us in our seasonal calving uh, herds when we need to get calving underway and over and done with very quickly in order to retain a, a 12-month inter-calving interval. As well, uh, in this, the first of the podcasts, we'll start to investigate just why your cows might remain anestrous or non-cycling for a frustrating long period of time between calving and planned starter mating. And I guess the frustration here is that these anestrous cows are going to need either uh, your veterinarian to get in, involved to to get these cows crash started, if you'd like, in terms of getting them mated in time, particularly during those first three critical weeks of mating. Or on the other hand, if we simply choose to do nothing with anestrous cows, clearly those cows will um, have quite a major impact on our three-week submission rate during the first um, 21 days of mating. So in this podcast, we'll talk firstly about the, um, the important role of energy balance in cows, uh, milking cows during early lactation, and how the dreaded negative energy balance, in other words, cows losing too much condition between calving and mating, can shut down a cow's ability to reactivate her reproductive system. And that point will build on uh, when we cover the uh, extreme importance of hitting target condition scores at calving. So that combination of condition score at calving and how much weight they lose between calving and mating. And this negative energy balance will go to uh, a fair level of detail around this and have a specific emphasis on this negative energy balance in pasture-fed cows. So we'll be intending to cover some pretty practical farm-based reasons for why cows will remain anestrous after calving, including not only nutritional factors in pasture-fed cows, but also some of the animal health-based reasons for creating havoc and, and causing too many anestrous cows. 
But if you choose then to tune into the second part of this two-part series about ovulation and estrus, we in the second of the of these series will cover off the all-important topic of the role of calving rate and how that impacts greatly on problems of anestrous cows. After we discuss that, we'll talk about some ways that we could look at to start to break out of that perplexing cycle, if you like, of slow calving rate and slow submission rate. So that's it's a tough place to be in, so we'll cover off some thoughts around that. As well, we'll talk a little bit about another frustration we sometimes have to deal with, which is when you have good uh, ovarian activity, good cycling happening early during lactation, then for whatever reason the cows uh, stop cycling again or appear not to no longer be showing heats just as you head into mating. We have to deal with that. Uh, the third part, I guess, around part two in this series is the background to what we call silent heats. So that's cows that do successfully start ovulating but are very shy and either show no heat signs at all after they've ovulated uh, or indeed if they do show signs, it's only for a tiny, very short period of time that doesn't allow us to pick them up on heat. We'll also finish up um, part two just talking a little bit about heat detection efficiency. So if you enjoy the content in this first part of this two-part series, hopefully keep an eye out you know, over the next week to 10 days and we'll be posting up part two uh, with this reproductive theme. But in the meantime, settle in, uh, whatever you're doing. You may have your feet up at home with a, a beer or a, a coffee, cup of tea, or <laughs> you're out and about on the road, running around after kids, tractor work, whatever you're doing. We hope that you enjoy this episode. Let's kick this submission rate topic off and get this underway with all things to do with cows and the contributing factor to our three-week submission rate during early mating. Well, I suppose first part first, before we delve into all the cow stuff, I guess we have to start talking about what, of course, are our target submission rates for the first three weeks of mating. And yeah, I bet you're probably going, oh, Charlotte, yeah, it, Charlotte, it's 90%. Just get on with it, move on, and that you know this stuff. And hey, look, the reason we're just going to define some of these targets is that we're hoping to cater for all of our listeners to this podcast, including our increasing um, listener base from non-New Zealand parts of the world, so overseas dairying and ruminants systems who may not have had so much to do with our seasonal calving systems here in New Zealand. So yeah, that's very much why we want to say that if we do things well in our seasonal calving systems, we set ourselves a target of wanting 90% of our cows to have been submitted for at least one mating during the first three weeks of mating, whether that be uh, artificial insemination, otherwise known as AI, uh, artificial breeding, AB, whatever you want to call it. So yes, we do want 90% or more of our cows to be submitted during the first three weeks of mating. And as I say, that contributes very strongly to a greater likelihood of hitting or becoming close to getting our six-week in-calf rate. That's another very important measure for New Zealand reproductive systems of 78% or more cows successfully holding in-calf during the first six weeks of mating. Two key drivers of that, a good three-week submission rate, 90% or more, and ideally a really good conception rate. That'll be the topic of a, another podcast another day. So team, if you're listening in and uh, we're recording this in mid-November 2022, maybe you're going already back over 
2022 spring mating or submission rates for this season. And if uh, we're feeling a little disappointed about submission rates, that typically means that less or fewer than 90% of the herd have been submitted during the first three weeks. So how low is too low in terms of below 90% before we should become concerned? Well, looking at a really good resource that's available on the Dairy NZ website is, of course, what we call the in-calf program resource that's available to download from Dairy NZ as a PDF. And that contains a lot of really, really good targets around submission rate, conception rate or non-return rate um, through to in-calf rate. So there's a huge number of numbers in there if you are quite an objective person and, and enjoy your targets to work towards. So within the in-calf program, they define that if our submission rate during the first three weeks of mating is under 81% of your cows um, being submitted during the first three weeks, that's probably when you should start seeking some help and advice around what you need to be trying to focus on and to work on to wonder why that you're well under that 90% three-week submission rate target. So yeah, 81 or less, that's implying that you're probably going to really start to struggle to get to your 78% six-week in-calf rate. Quite a good resource and worth looking at the in-calf program available as a PDF. So where on earth do we start? We've got a target to aim towards. We don't know yet what our cows have done. What do we do? Well, back in the old days, we'd sit down and manually calculate out your three-week submission rate. But nowadays, thankfully, assuming your data entry is up to date in terms of your matings being all collated nicely in a database, you can ask either your vets to supply all this information to you through InfoVet, or, and I'm not promoting any specific software databases, but the likes of Mind Alive, for example, but not limited to that, give you a really, really good breakdown of your overall three-week submission rate, a lot, along with other, a lot of good reproductive data. And importantly within that, it breaks it down by age, by early or late um, carvers, by a whole lot of other factors that can really help diagnostically to begin to understand which cows are more likely than others to end up not being submitted during the first three weeks of mating. Lots and lots of uh, good information there. Now, assuming that you've got that information, what do we do from a troubleshooting point of view if our three-week submission rate, the first 21 days of mating, hasn't reached target, or worst case is actually well below 81% of cows submitted? Where do we start? Well, I guess this is where we need to take our numbers and start to pull them apart to understand which cows, which categories of cows have uh, failed to be submitted during the first weeks of mating. And the easiest way to do that, I guess, is to break down the reasons why an individual cow or a category of cows wouldn't be submitted. And when we bring this back very much to a cow focus, we start to, I guess, grab different parts of this and say, firstly, cows that haven't been submitted uh, might be because those cows are anestrous or non-cycling cows. And that means simply 
they've failed to resume ovulation since they've calved and before planned start of mating. So the anestrous cow, we're going to focus quite a bit on her because she's a bit of a problem cow, uh, often requiring your vet to get involved to use, for example, but not limited to cedars, um, to kickstart her reproductive system into cycling. The next cow that we're interested in is in the good old girls that do actually start cycling after calving, but for a range of reasons they stop again. And we really don't appreciate this because we get all excited that cycling's going really well. We may not have yet done pre-mating heats, but you see cows cycling and riding each other out there and you go, wow, this is going to be my mating this year that's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden those cows aren't seen again. That's the second type of cow we'll focus on and reasons why they do that. The part three of this cow focus around why don't they turn up in the first three weeks of mating is of course what we call the silent heat cow. Now those are the girls that are cycling beautifully in terms of ovulating on a regular basis perhaps uh, every 18 to 24 days but they're not showing any heat signs and if they don't show heat signs to us at all how on earth are we going to put them up to AI or AB or to run them with bulls to get those cows and calf? So they're the cow focus bits and pieces and we're going to focus on each of those types of cows during this podcast. And then finally, as we say, a brief mention around heat detection, which of course is very much a human problem and we can't blame the cows for that. Number one, cows after calving and heading into mating, that are completely anestrous. Remember, they're not even thinking about starting cycling, ovulating or doing anything useful to support a good mating performance. So I guess in a descriptive sense, if we palpate the reproductive tract of these cows, <laughs> for us older vets that we used to do this routinely back in the day, if we're having a feel around uh, and the uterus feels nice and healthy, but when we start to feel the ovaries, instead of them being large and, and nice solid structures that have got follicles and corpus lutea or CLs um, on the ovaries showing that it's exciting and those ovaries are functional, these anestrous cows instead have tiny little shrunken ovaries. They're smaller than normal and you won't find any structures, no follicle CLs or anything. So really... These are not doing much. These ovaries are asleep on the job. And so not surprisingly, these cows with ovaries like that are very unlikely to be submitted during the first three weeks of mating. So these anestrous non-cycling cows, what on earth is going on? Well, there's probably four points that we're going to step through one by one that likely contributors to your cows being deeply anestrous, those tiny shrunken ovaries doing absolutely nothing. Right, number one factor that increases risk of anestrous cows is the body condition score of cows at calving. And so this is something that's very well reported internationally and of course with a lot of good work that's been done over the years here in New Zealand. So we consider for our Kiwi cows that uh, uh, condition score at calving is the number one factor 
that is contributing to the risk of cows remaining anestrous between calving and mating. And we've got two key aspects around how condition score of cows at calving impact risk of, well, overall reproductive failure, but specifically anestrous. Number one, if our cows are too light in condition score, so they're too thin versus target, we simply have these cows not holding enough spare energy, if you'd like, in the body bank of back fat, well, internal fat and other fat depots as well. But if the cow has a good amount of energy in the body bank, that will help buffer her against negative energy balance that almost all cows will experience in early lactation. But hold that thought because I'm going to be uh, having a yarn further about negative energy balance in a moment. So just hold that thought. But negative energy balance is harder on a cow and knocks her around more if that cow is too thin at planned start of calving. As well, if cows are very thin, that lack of body fat won't support the production of necessary levels of the reproductive hormones that we need specifically, but not limited to, estrogen and progesterone. So we need to have cows at target condition score at calving. More about this and some of the New Zealand targets we need to focus on next. On the other hand, the other extreme of cow body condition score at calving is if cows are way too fat. And if they're roly-poly fat, and I guess on the New Zealand body condition score 1 to 10, where 1 is emaciated, like thin as, and 10 is, oh my gosh, so fat you wouldn't want to think about it, we consider cows to be getting too fat at planned start of calving if they're already at a body condition score 6 or 6.5 or more on the New Zealand 1 to 10 scale. So those huge, wide, bummed uh, cows, including our friends, uh, what we call the carryover cows. So maybe they didn't get in calf last mating and you've carried her through for a year to mate her again. Quite often those will come in pretty chunky and those fat cows are absolute sitting ducks to have a greater risk of metabolic disease, specifically ketosis, hypocalcemia, low calcium after calving. And those fat cows are at real risk of dropping a huge amount of live weight and condition score between calving and mating. Now, this massive weight loss is something we're going to talk about um, a little further into this podcast, but we are acknowledging here that massive weight loss between calving and planned start of mating will contribute to a greater problem of anestrous cows, but also can, uh, well, it'll create issues with reduced conception rates which will be a subject of another podcast another day, and is also linked with the risk of phantom cows. So our cows that you mate think are in calf, but actually, they're actually empty. Again, another topic, another day. Long story short, getting cows uh, to be calving down at what we define as target body condition score, not too thin and not too fat, is the number one most important strategic thing we can do for a herd that is experiencing like real problems with anestrous cows 
assuming that other risk factors for anestrum are ruled out, and we're going to talk about some of the other factors aside from condition score at calving and anestrum shortly. Now, for us Kiwis here in New Zealand on our 1 to 10 condition score scale, we set a target or the optimal condition score for calving for older cows, so that's uh, cows older than four years of age at calving, we want those girls to be calving down at roundabout condition score 5 on the New Zealand 1 to 10 scale. On the other hand, for our younger cows that can be more vulnerable um, to anestrus and sometimes uh, just need a little bit more of a helping hand to get them essentially undergoing ovarian activity as soon as after calving, we like them to be a New Zealand condition score 5.5 at calving. Now, it's easier said than done. We'll always have a, a, a normal distribution or spread of condition scores either side of our target. But what we're trying to do is getting our average at five and the distribution or the spread as tight as we can so we don't have real tails of very fat and very thin cows either side of our average. Well, condition score at calving goes a little bit beyond uh, this topic today because, of course, condition score at calving is determined by a heap of other things that happened many, many months before planned start of calving, like we're thinking late lactation management, uh, previous you know end of the season, and or of course the dry cow management through uh, the dry period and whether cows were under or overfed. And uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about uh, that in autumn and winter next year uh, as most of our spring calving cows approach their dry periods. So the number one take home for this first discussion around anestrum or anestrous cows is that we'd encourage you very, very much to set in place uh, some routine body condition scoring in your herd so that we know what the condition score of your cows is looking like at key points of the, I suppose, the seasonality of the year, specifically at dry off and maybe earlier than that to help with some of your dry off decisions then again at plan starter calving, and then again at plan starter mating. And we're thinking not only to do just the minimum of 70 cows to give you a broad representation of condition score of the herd, but rather, if you can, by preference, you'd actually individually condition score all of your individual cows. Then through some of the clever software packages available nowadays, you can actually generate submission rate graphs for the first three weeks of mating and categorise that on absolute condition at planned start of calving for cows as well as how much condition that they change in terms of how much they lose between calving and mating. Really valuable if you're not already doing so. Uh, and maybe that's food for thought to have a think about if you are dealing with a herd that's got a lot of anestrous issues, challenges happening. So that's condition score at calving. Now we move on to another aspect of condition score, and that is the amount of condition score that cows actually mobilise or move off their backs between when they calve through to planned start of mating. So back to the New Zealand body condition score scale of 1 to 10 that we mentioned before. Now, based on this scale, in the ideal world, (laughs) that never happens, is that we'd prefer that our cows don't lose more than, this is the ideal world, more than half of one body condition score. So if they're calving in a condition score 5, 
hey, how cool would that be if they bottomed out 4.5 condition score? And worst case, if they churn a bit more weight off their backs than that, certainly losing no more than one body condition score. Now, for a 500 kilo cow, that probably equates to half a score is probably 15, 16 kilos of live weight loss from calving to mating, not including the the weight of the fetus and the fluids. Uh, Again, for a 500 kilo cow, it's probably around about 30, 32 kilos for one condition score loss from a five to a four. That's just for international listeners trying to fathom what we mean by the New Zealand condition score system. So assuming that these cows that are losing weight between calving through to mating and they're fit and healthy, which won't be the case when we get to the next topic around some of the health issues that contribute to too many anestrous cows, if they're fit and healthy, then we need to look for what other risk factors are there for cows losing or mobilising too much body condition during early lactation. Well, look, to be honest, the main reason cows will lose too much weight, aside from if they're really fat, like we mentioned before, and they kind of melt, they can lose like two condition schools before you know it. Assuming you've moved from a five to under a four between calving through to mating, what we have to now look at is a bit of a conundrum, a bit of a problem, in that our genetically superior awesome producing cows have been selected over the last few decades to produce a lot of milk very quickly after calving, which I guess is great, you know, getting to a a rapid rise to peak lactation and all these other measures we've talked about in some of our other podcasts. And that's great. However, this wonderful genetic merit that our cows now express hasn't quite been matched up by Mother Nature yet to allow the cow's appetite to keep up with this crazy fast lift and sudden lift in milk production after calving. So we get a period of days or sometimes weeks where we end up with the problem of negative energy balance in early lactation. And Well, it's actually negative nutrient balance. It's not just energy, it's protein, it's minerals, vitamins, a whole lot. But we call it, let's just keep keep it simple, we're just looking at energy. And that the energy that's going out towards producing milk is much, much greater than the energy that's coming in from what the cow is able to consume. So for a period of time for almost all cows, they will lose body condition score, which simply means the cows are trying to match, and probably if they're set up well, they'll manage to mobilise fat from their backs and internal reserves to support the mismatch between the nutrient and energy demand to support milk production versus the fact that the cow's appetite isn't yet ramping up where it needs to be. And negative energy balance, therefore, isn't a bad thing provided that the negative energy balance trough, if you'd like, think of it as a U-shaped curve on a graph where the uh, the energy balance is becoming more and more negative, then the trough bottoms out and starts to lift again. So what we want with negative energy balance is it for, to occur for as short a period of time as we can, and that trough of negative energy balance 
not to be a really deep U-shaped, but a shallow U-shape showing she's not having to mobilise too much condition. That's the link, I guess, between negative energy balance and cow condition score, and that's why we're always interested in just how much condition cows are taking off their backs during early lactation. So what happens if on that graph we've got a really deep U-shape, the cows have lost too much condition, they are continuing to lose too much condition, and they're not yet starting to get past the bottom of the trough of that U-shaped graph and starting to lift again back towards positive energy balance. Why does this cause problems for cows that should otherwise be starting to think about ovulating and, and, and we're starting to pick up heats? Well, unfortunately, if cows are losing a lot of body condition, trying to, to you know support extra nutrients for all the milk production, unfortunately, a deep and long-lasting negative energy balance impacts on what we call the HPO axis. And the HPO axis, oh, I don't want to bore you too much, but essentially it's a kind of a clever series of links and hormones between the hypothalamus and the pituitary, which is parts of the cow brain. Hey, we've got those too, but anyway, we're talking about the cow. And through hormones that travel around through the blood, the hypothalamus and pituitary in the brain talk, if you'd like, to the ovary. And when cows are heading towards positive energy balance, so they're no longer losing a lot of weight, the HPO axis fires up, kicks into life and goes, oh, this is good. You're starting to, to um, no longer lose weight. This means you're getting ready to start to think about getting in calf again. On the other hand, if we're still in deep negative energy balance, the HPO axis goes, no way, we're not going to give you the right hormones to get those ovaries happening because, well, you know, you, you're not in no fit state to be thinking about getting in calf. So it's kind of like Mother Nature's um, safety uh, mechanism, I suppose, is that if a cow's losing a whole lot of weight, Mother Nature doesn't want that cow to get in calf again because the poor old cow would just be too much for her. So the HPO access triggers in response to an increasing or rising plan of nutrition and allows those multiple hormones to start to activate to get the ovary working and collectively to get ovulation underway. So yeah, if we're not heading towards a positive energy balance, those ovaries stay well and truly asleep on the job and there's no way that we're going to get that reproductive tract effectively up and running in time for that cow to be correctly submitted during the first three weeks of mating. We remember, we need 90% of our cows uh, mated during the first three weeks of mating if we're even hopeful to get towards that important measure or metric or target of 78% of our cows in calf during the first six weeks of mating in our seasonal calving system. So long story short, the less weight or, or, or condition score that the cow mobilises during early lactation and the more quickly she's heading towards positive energy balance, the more chances are that cows will be ovulating and ready to be mated during the first three weeks of mating. If sadly you're looking at your body condition score figures and you're saying actually these cows have actually mobilised too much weight between calving and mating, you know, they were a good score five at, at calving and, and oh dear, now they're under a four. I guess we start to drill down into some of the reasons why they've lost too much weight and therefore why they haven't been able to get themselves out of that trough of negative energy balance and start heading north again towards positive energy balance after calving. 
So, look, where do we start to look? Hmm. Look, every farm will be slightly different, so there's nothing prescriptive about what we're going to chat about, rather just some generic issues that perhaps you can go away and have a think about, talk to your vet about, your farm consultant or your qualified nutritionist. But if you think about it, I guess cows losing weight and and mobilising too much condition more often than not will reflect the fact that they're simply not eating enough good quality feed to match those huge demands of lactation and all that milk solids that she's producing for you. And look, to be fair, despite our best efforts for many of our herds, we simply can't encourage and we can't force cows to eat enough feed and early lactation to to meet uh, the needs of, of milk production. So look, to be honest, the main reason New Zealand cows end up uh, being non-cyclers aside from body condition, um, being too low or too high in early lactation, is that we simply can't get our cows under particularly pasture-fed conditions to consume enough feed during early lactation. If we've got these thinner cows heading into mating, what else might have sort of been happening here? Well, I think if you're right at the point of plan starter mating, or sadly if you're a few weeks in and you're looking back, I think it's probably good while things are still fresh in your memories to have a think back through what might have been happening earlier in the season. So did you have some inadvertent feed pinches, like you're short of feed at any stage um, between calving and mating? You know, uh, I suppose in hindsight again, did the cows end up having to work maybe a bit too hard at any any point that you remember? Perhaps you calved down with a higher than expected average pasture cover? Maybe uh, the milking cows spent a bit too long, you know, a few days cleaning up some of those overly long paddocks at the top of your pasture wedge, you know, they, you know, you really did want them to clean it up and fair enough, so your quality's good next time around, but maybe they worked a bit too hard and maybe uh, that clean-up job should have been left to the dry cows to clean out those thatchy and not-so-good quality paddocks, um, done in good faith, but hindsight's a good thing. Maybe on the other hand, you are again doing the right thing and very much uh, sticking to your spring rotation planner that gets you through to balance state. So anyone interested in spring rotation planner, just uh, Google that and uh, Dairy NZ and you'll find a, a more detailed explanation of the spring rotation planner. But it's essentially about rationing um, your pasture out to get you through to balance state at which stage the demands for pasture from the herd equal the amount of pasture that you're growing as you head into peak pasture growth rates in the spring. So we won't talk too much more about that. But by restricting cows to a fixed but increasing area every day for the herd of pasture, sometimes to study a spring rotation planner, we inadvertently underfeed the cows for short periods, when in hindsight, sometimes you've got to drop a bit of baleage or a little bit more feed through the in-shed feeding system just to make sure cows don't end up inadvertently for short periods of time being uh, underfed to with you holding that spring rotation planner. On the other hand, hand on heart, you say there is no way that these cows had any feed pinches and will go, good work, well done you. Maybe then what else was happening? We may have had some silage or baleage, I guess. We don't feed a lot of hay to cows uh, in New Zealand. It's usually baleage or silage, uh, pasture, lucerne, whole crop cereal. Maybe the silage through, again, no fault of your own, it wasn't that great a quality and the cows wasted more than you'd uh, budgeted for in your feed budget. 
or they'd left so much behind, uh, you know, and you look at what baleage and silage are costing now with diesel prices and wrap and everything else that, you know, again, you said, well, geez, girls, you're going to have to go back in and tidy that up and, and maybe hand on heart. We made them clean up silage a bit too hard. And I guess carrying on from the theme around, uh, you know, anything that's going to stop these cars from heading up towards positive energy balance, is any abrupt or very sudden changes that kind of upset the world of a cow who's about to think about heading towards positive energy balance and therefore to start cycling? I suppose you'll have lots of examples in your own mind of where you've seen things happen that maybe, uh, you know, you notice, if, you know, the, the vat's down a couple of hundred uh, litres due to something that's happened on farm, you know, the previous day. And I mean, Oh, lots of examples. You'll have your own, but I mean, let's say something like uh, you may be uh, more intensively feeding uh, herd where you're feeding maize silage, for example, and, and you may have come to the back of a, a maize silage pit and you need to start onto a new stack of maize silage. And we always get that beginning of a new stack that maybe, you know, the, the front of a stack, the toe of a stack, <clears throat> whatever you want to call it, um, just isn't quite as nice quality just because, you know, we haven't been able to get the pack right uh, just at the toe of the stack. But it could be something like that, that the cows don't want to eat that spoiled stuff. Um, it's on the feed patter in the paddock and, and uh, you know, we don't want to waste anything. So we try and encourage them to eat it anyway or, and, and we don't chuck that stuff away. So needless to say, if you've got stuff that's not quite that flash, you better just to, to uh, take that, that bit out and, and dump that in start into a, a spit of the May silage stack that's better stacked and uh, is a lot tastier for the girls. Mainly, you know, heading into mating, we do not want anything to stop them uh, eating particularly well. Could be that uh, a load of um, wheat, rolled wheat, uh, that's going through the in-shed feeding system that's been a bit over-processed and you've got lots and lots of fines. Cows aren't so keen on eating those fines. Uh, that could be enough just to turn the appetite off for some of those cows. And remembering these abrupt changes, it's not always about our pasture on offer in front of them or our supplementary feeds. It's also very much about stock water supply. And you'll all know the, you know the the uh, what we see in the vat. If cows go without water, they they can certainly drop production quite abruptly. And it could be you know these inadvertent things, perhaps. The herd might have spent a few days up the end of the farm or a block, you know, where we've had stock water leaks that have happened through the winter or whatever and, you know, we end up in, in these early periods after lactation where water supplies haven't necessarily kept up with the cow's requirements for a day or two or three and, uh, you know, you pick it up in the vat as, goodness, there's obviously something wrong. We we didn't check, you know, when we went to lock cows away that there was enough water in, in there and uh, as we know, any periods of time in early lactation where cows are thirsty, that will certainly also prevent them from eating to appetite and keeping heading north towards that positive energy balance. So it could be enough to slow down a cow's appetite and therefore um, onset of ovulation and, and cyclicity and, and heading towards getting a few cycles before we head into those first three critical weeks of submission rate. As well as that, here in New Zealand, we do, uh, in, in many situations, put a lot of additives into the stock water and specifically magnesium. And again, if we get the numbers wrong and we inadvertently add too much magnesium uh, into the stock water to prevent 
hypermagnesemia and therefore hypocalcemia, as we need to do with cows heading into peak lactation. Just be careful with your additive rates and that someone doesn't, you know, double dip. Perhaps someone's already added the magnesium and someone else on the team goes, there's no magnesium, I'll add it today. And we inadvertently make that water taste very bitter. Again, if that happened for two or three or four days, that also just might drop appetite in the cows and and, uh, knock off a few of them that were starting to uh, think about cycling. Again, maybe we had a few metabolic cases. We're going to talk about that in the next section shortly, where we lost appetite. So cows with subclinical or clinical milk fever, hypocalcemia, or perhaps ketosis, didn't have the munchies. So it looked like you were leaving good post-grazing residuals behind, saying, I am fully feeding my cows, but maybe for whatever reason they were inappetent. They didn't have the munchies enough to chase the grass or the supplements that you are offering them. And some of the key things we're always looking for here is too many uh, bulling cows, the cycling cows, which is great, they're cycling. But if those are ones that are going down with apparent milk fever, we have a subclinical issue bubbling away um, beneath the surface that may be stealing appetite from your cows. But anyway, gone off track because we're going to come back to that in more detail in a moment. So again, it's it's the memories to sort of tap into while they're fresh, um, you know, just a matter of a couple of months ago. And of course, the other thing we can look at in hindsight might, it could be weekly farm reports um, that in hindsight you were tracking average pasture cover and it was a lot lower than other years and you go, mm, yeah, okay, um, I genuinely wasn't underfeeding them, but maybe at times we're a bit tighter than in other years. Or another thing to look at uh, with a little bit of care, but sometimes looking at your milk data can tell you a few things. Maybe the lift through to peak lactation wasn't quite as good as it was in previous years. Maybe they've uh, peaked flatter um, and, and not as well. And you can go back to uh, our podcast about why do cows not peak very well in early lactation because if they're not peaking well, chances are that may have impacted on reproductive performance, specifically resumption of cyclicity or, or ovulation after calving. And while you're online looking at milk production curves versus previous years, you can also look at milk protein percent because, again, it's a podcast topic another day, but your milk protein percent, even though it's protein, bizarrely, if it's lower than normal, can suggest you had some energy deficits that were actually impacting on cyclicity uh, with the ovulating of your cows. And of course, your milk protein to milk fat ratio that may be lower than other years. Something's gone wrong there in terms of energy intake, might have been climate related, pasture quality, lots of other um, kind of different things there. So yeah, hindsight is not as good as standing in the paddock looking at the gal- uh, the cows and like the girls today. But uh, if you thought like cows should have been ovulating really well and in actual fact you got a lot of non-cyclers, obviously hindsight's better than nothing to go back and take a look and see if there's evidence of negative energy balance happening worse than you thought or that you've conditioned scored your cows at planned start of mating and they're thinner than usual. So as mentioned, this brings us now into another risk factor for anestrous cows, like having too many anestrous cows, which of course is if your cows are unwell for any reason from an animal health and well-being point of view. So I guess it's a given, hey, like think about it, if we're not well, we're kind of like not up to up to speed where we need to be, cows are no different. So if a cow's been unwell for any reason since calving, and we're kind of thinking of an unresolved case of metritis, you know, metritis or metritis, pyometra, pus in the uterus, 
mastitis, or importantly, if she has been lame at any stage between calving, heading into mating, you know, like bull and cows get lame and all these sorts of things. She's not only been quite unwell and um, quite sore, like mastitis really makes them quite unwell, but also that they've been unwell and energy's been wasted having the immune system having to kick in to fight a problem of infection somewhere. But also, if she's unwell, like if she's got a quarter that's really solid with mastitis, she's not going to be able to walk well and graze effectively or to access, access supplements that have been fed out in the paddock. And of course, not only mastitis, but also lame cows, as we said before, this will most definitely contribute to a deeper and possibly longer lasting extent of negative energy balance between calving and mating. Largely through cows that just don't want to get out amongst it and eat and harvest feed effectively like they normally would. And as we mentioned before, a more severe and prolonged negative energy balance will increase the likelihood of more anestrous cows and not hitting your target of 90% of cows submitted during that first three weeks of mating. Strong correlation between unwell cows and estrum and not hitting target. Now that's things like injury um, <clears throat> and infection, such as lameness, mastitis and the like, but as mentioned before, metabolic disease has a huge amount to answer for as well. So it's kind of a given, eh? Like if a cow hasn't recovered well from calving due to metabolic disease, even during that periparturient um, period, either side of calving or even in the first few weeks after calving, milk fever, especially for older cows, if your older cows aren't submitting well, or perhaps your first and second calf is not submitting well, we'd be looking at issues of ketosis uh, and the fat cows, high, high condition score at calving, ketosis as well. Subclinical and clinical metabolic disease will increase risk of poor appetite. They won't have the munchies to get out amongst it and graze well. So kilograms dry matter consumed per cow per day is lower than where it needs to be. The extent and duration of negative energy balance is worse. That HPO axis that works to either kickstart reproductive well-being or on the other hand stays shut down means we get more anestrous cows. Now we mentioned issues around endometritis right through to pyometra with the uterus and how from a systemic feeling of feeling unwell that will increase risk of anestrum. Now the other more direct effect of what I suppose here in New Zealand we call them dirty cows, cows that haven't cleaned up their reproductive tract successfully after calving. You see that as crusty bits on the tail. You may smell them at cups on because you go, oh, something smells a bit rank. These cows have got some local issues within the uterus with a issue around infection there that's stopping the reproductive tract from cleaning out as quickly after calving as it should. Now, don't panic about some vaginal discharge from the cows after calving. If it doesn't smell, it's not greatly voluminous. This discharge is actually fine and normal, but only to a point. If after calving you've got lots of crusty discharge, isn't very nice, the cow is looking rough-coated and not coming into milk as she um, should be, then you need to get the vet involved to look at these cows sooner than later. 
These cows may have a history of perhaps a hard calving, metabolic disease, or maybe retained fetal membranes. And there's going to be a reasonably good chance that these cows have an infected and probably quite an inflamed, uncomfortable uterus for these poor old cows. So, yeah, these dirty cows, because of this ongoing discharge, it's not cleaning up as well. They'll have a poor appetite. They won't eat well. They'll lose too much weight because she's wasting too much energy, like getting the immune system involved in that prolonged state of fighting disease. And again, that will shut down the HPO axis. And these will end up as anestrous cows that don't submit very well during the first weeks of mating. As well, left untreated, these crook cows with a uterine infection might um, actually, rather than continuing to discharge that goo that you see, and instead she might just literally close up shop, close off the reproductive tract with a closed cervix, and that instead turns into what we call a pyometra. And that's a bit of a revolting situation where you end up with a uterus that's chocker full of pus. And the presence of a pyometra also more directly stops the onset of ovulation. So of course we want to know about these cows not only so we can treat them to improve reproductive performance, but hey, at the end of the day, none of us want sad, unwell cows on farm, that we want all of our cows to be fit happy and very healthy, feeling a whole lot better in themselves and and wouldn't we want to if we were sick. So I guess, look, the take home here around anestrous cows is that anything, and we mean anything from an animal health perspective, that messes with a cow's well-being, how she's feeling, and her appetite, her desire to eat feed during early lactation, will increase the problems of negative energy balance heading into mating. And for a later carver particularly, that will just shut down the ability of getting her to turn on her HPO axis and therefore to start thinking about ovulating, heading into mating. Now, of course, here at the Rumen Room, we chuck in the standard disclaimer about now, which is, of course, there is no one-size-fits-all around animal health and well-being and concerns around dirty cows and around the longer-term implications through to mating. Now, chances are your vet's all over this working alongside you. You're probably doing some sort of um, scooping um, of vaginal discharge out, the likes of metri checking, but other homemade scoopers to have a look at discharge and then treating cows as required. And This remains very much between you and your vet to make decisions, the timing of checking these cows and the approach to treating them. We're not going to go there. But it's a given that cows that have an unhealthy uterus, we need a plan to put together to greatly reduce the numbers of uh, unwell and reproductively compromised cows this season. But immediately we need to be putting together a cunning plan for next season in a preventative capacity to make sure we don't end up with lots of dirty cows again next year. So prevention is very much better than cure. And the same can be said for metabolic disease issues that haven't been resolved and are therefore uh, impacting on poor appetite by your cows where they're not wanting to eat. And again, prevention is better than cure around metabolic disease And I guess while we're talking about clinical or subclinical disease, we big shout out to the amazing technology available nowadays. 
cow wearables or whatever you want to talk about, whether that be uh, collars, tags, etc., the amazing ability to track individual cows and their rumination. Now, the baseline rumination for herds uh, will differ slightly depending on the overall feed base, whether that's intensive feeding. Uh, but anyway, for your herd, you will have what we deem as a normal baseline for adequate rumination. And amazing technology now allows us to detect when cows are ruminating sufficiently to determine that they are in a good state of health and therefore more likely to cycle. So, yeah, it's it's amazing where industry has come in the last uh, recent years and many of you now will have that amazing ability to track cows and we can't speak highly enough of this technology to help not only determine when cows immediately after calving uh, are not up to speed yet in terms of normal rumination to justify, for example, changing from once a day to twice a day milking, or in fact if we have glitches along the way heading between calving and mating where cows may have been ruminating well and are no longer ruminating through lameness, mastitis, unresolved metritis, uh, cows not competing well and therefore not eating sufficiently. So shout out to those technologies and certainly we can assume that when you are troubleshooting an anestrous herd issue, again the ability to track back and look for flags along the way where there's been evidence of cows not eating to appetite for a whole raft of issues. Now before we leave the topic of animal health issues and the relationship with risk of anestrous cows, we'll just make a brief mention here around trace nutrient status of cows. So that's minerals uh, and also vitamins. Now, each of these minerals and vitamins are worthy of a standalone Room and Room podcast, and we are intending to do this. But we'll mention in passing here that selenium and low selenium levels in your cows is strongly implicated in reproductive health and well-being. So low selenium will increase the risk of everything from reduced uh, immunocompetency, the ability of cows to fight disease. Low selenium, as many of you know, will, con will contribute to cows at whole cleanings, uh, as well as that just the function of white cells to inside the blood of the cows to actively track and trace. It's a little bit like the track and trace with COVID, that white cells are less likely to go chasing bacteria if uh, a cow is selenium deficient. Another story, another day. As well as that, copper is very important in immune function, helping cows to clean up the reproductive tract. And also iodine, and in fact another story is iodine and selenium working together with immune function. And iodine is important not only directly to uh, reduce the risk of anestrous cows. Iodine contributes to things such as the strength and duration of heats that are expressed when cows are finally up and running and ovulating. So just a point to make here, and again, with regard to minerals, there are no prescriptive approaches here. You're very much in the capable hands of your own vet who knows your herd, your farm, your feeds, and encouraging to work with your vet to take blood samples at key times. And that would be anything from calving, from freshly calved cows, or maybe springing cows. And looking at a whole raft of things like blood levels of calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, 
beta-hydroxybutyrate, so that's one of the ketone bodies in the blood, as well, of course, as trace mineral nutrition, like we've just explained. And very likely your vet will be encouraging you to also look at the uh, mineral status of the cows as they head into mating as well. And look, yeah, costs have gone up and blood sampling or liver sampling certainly sits in what is viewed by some people as a discretionary spending area and maybe we shouldn't do it when we're looking to cut costs. But we'd like to argue here at the Room and Room podcasts that you've only got to offset a handful of anestrous cows if you determine you've got a trace mineral or macro mineral deficiency um, to easily cover the costs of doing blood work. So it's not really a discretionary spend and we'd encourage you to work with your vets on that one. Now to work alongside blood tests, of course, is ideally, and this is an ideal approach, is of course to be doing feed testing, just to understand not only the levels of macro and trace minerals that are going down the food hole in the cows, but of course to pick up other challenges such as lower than planned uh, ME on your pastures or in fact some of your conserved feeds, your silages, as well as other oddball things. And I guess we're thinking of this in 2022 where we had some unusually low pasture proteins, uh, particularly in our first grazing round this spring due to some very long, wet winter conditions we've had here in New Zealand where we, in hindsight, obviously were leaching quite a bit of nitrogen out um, that the ryegrasses weren't able to pick up. So pastures, supplementary feeds, and of course, uh, hopefully if your vet likes a bit of nutrition, they'll be able to help you with this, uh, and or your qualified nutritionist just to chat about how to interpret some of your feed results. Right, well, let's part one of this two-part series, all things to do with uh, anestrus and uh, some of the factors that cause anestrus in your cows. And we've covered, I guess, some of the nutritional aspects, the condition score at calving, the changing condition from calving to mating that impacts on anestrus or risk of anestrus in cows and seasonal calving herds in this podcast. Just to remind you that if you've enjoyed this particular podcast, in part two of this two-part series, we'll finish up the task of discussing anestrus cows and that specific challenge that will cause anestrus cows if indeed you are stuck in that recurring cycle of slow calving rates that then feed into low resumption of cyclicity after calving in that continuous loop, slow calving, slow mating, slow calving, slow mating. So we will focus on that in the first part of the next anestrus and estrus focus for that particular podcast. We'll also talk about, of course, as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, why cows will stop cycling again after cycling earlier in lactation. We'll then move on to the silent heat challenges where cows are ovulating or cycling absolutely fine but they don't show a heat so we can't find those girls and then we'll finish up with just a very brief chat around heat detection efficiency but look in the meantime thanks so much for joining us again any comments or tips and tricks of your very own around how you've improved not only your uh, onset of ovulation in your cows and, and got rid of a lot of those annoying anestrous cows or that you've managed to get better heat expression in your cows, we'd love to hear from you. So look, just do drop us a line, give us some feedback, go back to the Room and Room group in, in uh, Facebook and uh, drop us some comments or start a new post.
But look, in the meantime, thanks so much again uh, for joining us. This has been Charlotte Westwood, and on behalf of both myself and, of course, our good old sponsors, PGG Rights and Seeds, hope that you have an awesome day out and about, whatever you're doing. Look forward to you joining us again very soon. Cheers. Cheers.